This is Thrive Perspectives, an ever-growing discussion about the issues and ideas that shape our lives with your guide, Dr. Matthew Jacoby. Good morning, Connell. Great to be back in the studio with you and Matt. Welcome, Perspectives. Here we are, lads. Yeah. We we continue our uh, conversations around Christian worldview. Listeners, great to have you with us. I'm going to make a confession. I have absolutely no idea (laughs) what it is that we're going to be talking about today. I'm sitting here twitching with excitement because, (laughs) because really, you know, what we're going to talk about today is really the core of what a lot of my work in philosophy has been focused on, in fact. Yep. Uh, in, including my, my doctoral work. So I'm just a little bit excited. We're not going to be too esoteric and, and all the rest. This is pretty applicable. Uh, but I want to talk about knowledge, doubt, certainty. Now, when I, when I say these things, uh, that all sounds uh, pretty out there. But this is really, I think this is going to be really practical uh, because I want to try to diagnose what happens when we when we de- like what we're doing and one of the problems i think with skepticism is that often skeptics aren't skeptical about their skepticism straight away that sounds really esoteric doesn't it <laughs> that's good <laughs> but we we need to actually analyze what's happening when we doubt and what it is that we're actually wanting so what you're saying is that Connell and I'll just go, mm-hmm, no, no, yes, no, no, every I, now and I, again. I'm sure. And I'll probably uh, ask a silly question. but um, I'm sure I'll get lots of pushback, yeah. and, and, and that's what I'm after <laughs> here. So, so, yeah, hit, hit me hard, lads. Radio. Buckle um, in. I think, first of all, it's just worth talking about knowledge and, and what we mean by knowledge. And this is an area of philosophy. And by the way, this is enormously important for faith, understanding faith. So um, we're not just going to talk philosophy here. We're going to really get to some mm. practical stuff, but we need to understand a little bit what uh, about what knowledge actually is and what counts as knowledge. Now, one of the problems in our culture, let me put this straight up, uh, we are culturally conditioned uh, to only recognize a certain kind of thing as knowledge. Uh, and this has a background, this has a bit of a history to it. So this has changed. If you went back 500 years ago, uh, the average person would think completely differently uh, about this. Something has happened over the last 500 years that has actually changed the way that we think to to the point which we will only recognize a certain narrow field as counting for knowledge. Now, some people see that as a step Mm -hmm. forwards, but a lot of people increasingly now see that as far, far too narrow. In fact, I would say even most people now in in philosophy see that account as far too narrow. What I'm talking about is an approach to knowledge that is what I will describe as a a subject-object notion of knowledge, where you have this sense that I am I the subject, I am the subject, and I am set off in some sense from the thing that I know, so I can kind of observe it in a slightly detached kind of way. That's right. And objectively observe that it's there, you know. So, uh, you know, I can see a table in front of me and microphones and I can see the room around me and I, and, and I'm sort of set off from that and I can observe that and it's tangible and, you know, we can investigate that. Uh, We can even divide things up and put things under the microscope. And that, is is known as empirical knowledge, or you know, it's knowledge of, knowledge of the tangible world. 
And we like that sort of knowledge because we, as I said, we stand off from that and we can kind of objectively look at it as though we're we're on the outside and we look down into it and we can have an element of mastery you know we can really understand something and penetrate something and 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 even manipulate that control. thing yeah, yeah can, there's an element of control in that but that's not just limited either though to the <clears throat> era of scientific method mm. and like if you go back through history i think I mean, I mean, that's probably what we all do anyways. We try to create gods, tangible gods for ourselves. You know, if you look yeah, all through yeah, history, see what we, you're saying there, yep. we always, I think probably going back in, in history, before we kind of got so locked into scientific method as the only way to know things, is that we would still try to reduce everything down to something that works for us in yep. a tangible way. That's right. Yeah. So the tendency has always been there because it is what I've described before mm. as the God complex. You know, we, we have this God complex and that that is at work very pervasively in, in the world in, mm. in so many different senses. And part of what I want to say today is that it's even at work in what we will allow ourselves to recognize as knowledge. Yeah. So we will only recognize things that have us in some sense, set off from the thing we know. And even we will only call knowledge that which we can know in a sort of exhaustive, uh, objective, analytical fashion, or at least potentially analytically analytical fashion, yeah. that really has us in this sort of godlike position. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, the tendency has always been there because the mm-hmm. God complex is something that begins with the fall, right? Genesis chapter 3. Yeah eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? I'm standing outside of reality in in almost like this judge-like position with this understanding of good and evil, which actually there was a level of innocence that we had in the first place that was so connected into reality, into the goodness of God's creation, that we had no knowledge of any other option because mm-hmm. we were so inside it, so connected with it. Yeah. But the, you know, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you know, st- the temptation, of course, was that then you will be like God, right? Mm-hmm. You can this sense, and and it, and it's interesting the association with the temptation and with knowledge, knowledge isn't it? Yeah. That there's something about knowledge yeah, right. that is associated with that God complex, yeah. and so we we certainly favour things, as you say, that that are tangible and that we can see and manipulate to some extent, and so this has been borne out in, you know, the need for idols, for example. Yeah. It's 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 why you know idolatry is so strictly forbidden in the Bible because God is essentially saying, "Don't make me into something less than that I that mm-hmm. than I am." Right? I'm not a tangible object that you can shift around and stick on the back of an ox cart and so forth. You and know. observe from a distance. Yeah, observe yeah. from a yeah. distance, you know, yeah. and and approve or not approve or uh, have some sense of control. Yeah. That's over right. It. Yeah. Domination of all or even <clears throat> maybe it goes as far as to like knowledge in terms of I can actually see it when I you know, I yeah. I can choose to look at it and I can yeah. see it and I can choose to touch it and I can touch yeah. it and feel it. Yeah. And for that to happen, it has to be limited in some sense to yeah. uh, accommodate to our yeah. perception. Yeah. Uh, so, But I think the ultimate expression of that is scientific method where we can yeah. actually reduce it down to an experiment that we can repeat. And we can't do that on everything. So then we at least 
then go, well, let's reduce it down to something that we can at least, maybe we don't completely understand it. If you're looking at an yeah. idol, you don't understand the power of the God that's behind it, but at least I've reduced it down to something that I can, brings it into my tangible yeah, that's world. Right. I'm not comfortable with things being outside of but what's exactly. tangible. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Because it puts it outside of our control. Yeah. So the, the view that narrows knowledge, because there's a view that, philosophical view that explicitly says this, that uh, we can only call that knowledge which we, which is verifiable or falsifiable in some sense through scientific method, mm -hmm. right? And that's known as positivism. And, uh, you know, positivism says, you know, if it's not a tangible fact in that sense, then we can't claim to know it. It's And, and in fact, logical positivism went a step further to say that it's not even meaningful to talk about things that are not tangible facts. So, mm -hmm. you know, God and morality and, and you know, these there's the soul. And if they're not tangible, it's just meaningless mm -hmm. even talking about them, right? Now, it's important to recognize actually that logical positivism as a philosophical movement is completely, it's dead. It's mm -hmm. as dead as any philosophical movement ever was. Right. Now, it's interesting because that that's in philosophy because philosophers recognize that actually that criteria that criteria for knowledge, it, that the claim doesn't meet its own criteria. Mm. In other words, you can't prove that there is no nothing outside of tangible reality that was recognised as far too narrow a view of reality, or at least a view of reality that wants to narrow things down to what we can perceive and understand. I mean, in the 20th century, particularly as scientists are dealing with quantum physics and all sorts of weird things, you know, they're, they're, it just increasingly became a completely untenable position. And it's also interesting to see that, you know, in, in the 2000s, there was this, you know, big new kind of push of very militant atheism. And at the time, it was known as the new atheism. Um, you know, Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris and these guys. Um, that, although although some of that is still a bit pop, you know, in, it has some kind of popular following that kind of way of thinking and, you know, like a comedian like Ricky Gervais, mm -hmm. you know, famously yeah. still sort of uh, holds to that. Yet that's kind of dead in the water as well. I mean, in, in serious, like no one, I, I think, particularly in philosophical circles, yeah. no one's taking that serious because they're grounding that, that, that new, new atheism is grounded in logical positivism, mm. which is a dead philosophical movement. Mm. Now, a book uh, that I read recently by J uh, John Gray, the philosopher John Gray, you know, he's an atheist, but he's a much more mystical kind of atheist. He's an atheist that recognizes, oh, there's lots of <laughs> mystery here and, and how sure can we even be? And, uh, you know, he's an atheist that even recognizes that there are almost you know, what we would see as spiritual aspects or, or, or uh, inner guiding aspects to reality uh, that he's probably m moved beyond the strict materialist view that there's just tangible stuff. And um, and he actually says that the new atheism of the, that that period is actually an embarrassment to atheism. I mean, that's yeah. that's that's how untenable that, that particular view is. I think it is in, the, in that sort of more academic level, but I think to the popular, easy to consume. Yeah, it is. Modern. You know, where it's simplistic. people are, uh, want to throw stones at Christianity. Yeah. It's an easy thing for people to digest because it's it's very, very simple. It's built on very simple framework yeah. that really doesn't stand up to the rigors of any kind of serious no, philosophical thinking. 
but it makes sense if you only want to think surface level and yeah. don't actually do want to do any kind of yeah, that's deeper right. thinking beyond that. And that's why, you know, John Gray, again, is, is an atheistic philosopher in his mm. book, uh, Seven Types of Atheism, where he, you know, he says it's that, that it's so simplistic, that new atheist view, the Dawkins kind of Ricky Gervais view, that it's just an embarrassment to, to serious atheism, he mm. thinks. Now, uh, there's a lot more mystery and a lot more room for doubt. And, and, and again, not, it doesn't allow for the kind of certainty that, that the new atheists they went out with that very militant, you know, anti, uh, anti theistic uh, view. That they're basing their certainty on a very, very narrow, uh, narrow view. So it's worth, I think, from here. Um, so just, just so to to know that, and and I, you know, because those popular views are going, still going around, as you said, Connell, and yeah. and and they get dug up, and you got, you know, like popular figures like you know Ricky Gervais, who's you know who's, who digs this stuff. You just got to know that that it just doesn't really hold water at any level, really. And and even the more sophisticated forms of atheism, uh, you know, that's a lot fuzzier at the edges, deliberately, because yeah. they're saying, well, we can't really know that there's not, you know, but it's the it's something like a belief that yep. there's no god right mm-hmm. it's they're much more cautious uh, about that it it'd be worth just giving a little bit of a history of actually how we got to this though okay. uh and and i'm yeah, and i'm going to try and do this very um you know simply simply as i can and um and and i'm going to i'm going to talk about uh, philosophy and and i know some of our listeners listeners you know might say why you know why bother about all of this philosophy it's because this all trickles down and it affects the way that we even think of, of, as Christians, yeah. right? Because we we use these words and these languages like any culture. No one really can step right outside their culture. And, and I'm going to talk about our kind of European culture has been deeply affected by, you know, particularly the last sort of 300, 300, 400 years through the Enlightenment. We are actually all affected by this. I mean, we were having conversations before we uh, started recording, Connell, uh, that just said to me, oh, you're a classic child of uh, this culture, you know, as as am I, as, as we all are. But what I've striven to do, uh, and, and one of the reasons why I have found so much value in the study of philosophy, it helps me to actually be critical of the way that I we naturally approach things yeah. within the, the lens of our culture. It allows us to be critical mm-hmm. uh, of that, including critical of the kind of scepticism that is very characteristic of our culture and this shut, has shut out, effectively shut out a whole field of reality yeah. that is mm-hmm. uh, very problematic. Mm-hmm. So this probably goes back initially to the the. the Early days of the invention of the of the scientific method, and you know this begins, of course, with Galileo, but particularly with the English philosopher Sir Francis Bacon, who reacted against this kind of science that was uh, a science that was taken up. I mean, science was used very broadly. It was just a re- science referred to a rigorous application of logic to right. questions, right? right? That's basically what science meant. And he wanted to come up with something that was less speculative and 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 uh, and and science slash philosophy and actually there wasn't really any distinction between those things. The philosophers were the yeah. scientists and the scientists were the philosophers. And and Francis and, Bacon, he was a Christian, wasn't he? Uh mm. yeah, well, yes. I mean, in, that's least- a 
Whether he was a Christian, but he would yeah. ascribe to some kind of Yeah, when you're in faith. the 1600s, it's, Everybody it's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. difficult. it's yeah. difficult to say, really. Yeah. At least professedly, yes, yes. he's yes. a Christian. That's right. right. So, so the prevailing view of the day was the view of the universe was uh, an Aristotelian view of the universe. And, and Christian thinkers were quite accepting of this, that they felt, uh, you know, thinkers like, Thomas Aquinas and, and so mm. forth, like leading uh, theologians who really shaped theology, the, even theolo- much of the theology that we mm. developed, were quite accepting of elements of this because it was, you know, it, they felt it, it was consistent with aspects of the Christian worldview. So, you know, Aristotle sees everything as being, uh, as being guided in some sense. You know, everything becomes what it is because it's, there's this inner guiding force that's sort of um, you know, that makes it so. Makes yep. it so, right? And and you know, medieval theologians said, well, yes, and 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 we see that as God. You know, now now for Aristotle, it you know he, he has his version of God, and and they accepted that. Well, he's working off the little that he knows about God, and in by general revelation, we can recognize that he was on the right track, right? But it was a, it was a view of uh, of the universe where everything was sort of animated and guided. And there was a lot of providence in everything, in in some sense, some very general sense. Um, so Francis Bacon sees that this is all of this speculation is not really empowering us to actually get down to you know the details mm. and actually do right. anything practical with yeah. this. And he wants an approach to knowledge that is just based on something that's testable and uh, you know and and that allows us actually to you know manipulate. Mm-hmm. This reality that we live with and and control uh, it and control it in yeah. some sense, you know. So, uh, you know, he wanted an approach to knowledge that was, you know, verifiable and that allowed us to do things. So we just wanted let's be practical, basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, the famous, you know, slogan, uh, you know, knowledge is power. That that mm-hmm. comes from Sir Francis Bacon, mm-hmm. right? And and it tends to be used in a very positive sense, like we're empowered by our knowledge. Well, he wanted an approach to knowledge that would empower us to actually gain some measure of control mm-hmm. over our environment. Right? Yeah. It's not just speculative knowledge of for the sake of knowledge, you know, yeah. for yeah. the sake of knowledge. And and so, and and so, this is the beginnings of an approach to science that moves science away from you know grand metaphysical speculation mm-hmm. and then puts the emphasis. On testability and mm. and you know which something much thing. more tangible, which is good, it's, you know, it's, yeah, which which is good, yeah. Uh, now now that for him, he saw that as you know fulfilling the mandate to subdue the earth, you know that that we need a knowledge that will enable us to subdue the earth, and so uh, you know he saw science as a way of subduing, you know, mm. essentially subduing the earth. I think. I'm not. I won't go into that point, but I do think that's problematic. Uh, that connection, yeah. but um, but we won't go into that right now. And then you know, around the same time, then uh, you had a, a lot of religious debate. You know, between Protestant and Catholic, we're in the Protestant era now, and uh, you know, states are at war, and 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 there's there's a at least a sort of tacit desire in society for a basis of knowledge that can help people 
arbitrate these kinds of discussions, right? Because the Protestants are saying this and the Catholics are saying this. And, so who's and, right? Yeah, it's yeah. like, you know, I mean, what what do we use to try and arbitrate between, yeah. Yeah. you know, between mm-hmm. all in all of these debates? And, yeah. and the, you know, going back to the Greek philosophers and Greek philosophy has, has had a revival now and and natural answer was, well, reason. We can use reason. Yeah, reason can be the arbiter of mm-hmm. truth. Okay. And- uh, and and this essentially begins with Descartes, French philosopher uh, Descartes. You know, reason is going to be the arbiter of truth. Now, I just want to pause there and also recognize the problematic nature of that. Mm-hmm. That reason is the arbiter yeah. of truth, right? Yeah. That if something is not rational, then it can't be real. Now, you mm. like you that, apply that to quantum physics, yeah, even, yeah. and 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 you or rep- apply that to you know space time singularities, or but isn't rational based on or or related to what we know anyway? It's like yeah, y- yeah. you know, it's it's connected to what what we currently. That's know. right. You, you have to infer from things that yes, we. Yeah, that's, that's right. right. From a from a ba- some basis, right? Mm. I understand that is important because the new atheists, and particularly if you take. Richard Dawkins, when he wrote his work on the God delusion, yeah, his whole premise is based on the fact of putting reason against faith. So yeah, he, yeah that's he, right. Yeah. Right from the outset, his opening firing shot is to say that if we don't base what we know on what we can test yeah. and demonstrate, then we end up in faith. Well, then we can just believe. Yeah, we can whatever, believe anything. Whatever yeah, yeah. we want. And so yeah. you end up with all these religions. There is Arbitrate. no right and yeah. wrong. So that, exactly. the, the motivation there, there's a, there's a soundness in terms of that as mm. a reasonable okay. reasonable proposition. Right. Yeah. And that's because you you really are playing the devil's advocate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Are we allowed to good. say that in the Christian And, and actually, <laughs> like he, he is, like we've said in previous mm. episodes, it's one thing to recognize a problem. And it's another thing to think that you have the solution yeah. to that problem, right? Yeah. And he is rightly recognizing uh, a kind of chaos, like there's so many truth claims in the world today. How can we arbitrate between them, right? Mm-hmm. Now, this is exactly uh, the kind of problem that, for example, Descartes was trying to solve yeah. and the other rationalists, right? They're, they're trying to solve that exact problem. Um, now, the, the thing is, their strategy, well-meaning as it is, but it didn't actually succeed, really. You know, because we reason from certain premises. Everyone reasons from certain premises, but the premises from which we reason cannot themselves be verified by reason. Mm-hmm. So he reasons from the belief that there is no reality outside of what is tangible or rational and so forth. Would he, but does, does that's he... that premise is taken on faith in yeah. a sense. Yeah. So is. he assumes his atheism in order to to make that argument. To, to make that argument. Or, or at least he, he assumes a very narrow field of reality. I think he would argue, he probably can't demonstrate that that is something that he can prove. Yeah. But he would say, I would imagine, if he was in this conversation, yeah. that in the absence, if we can't- This is the best we've got. It, we, we can't explain everything, but let's limit to what we- can explain, or at least yeah, that's the right. things that we're going to stake our life on, I go go around teaching to our, our kids at school, in the education yeah. system. People are out there, you know, killing each other and oppressing other people over different beliefs that are completely just made up. You that's know, right. They yeah. can, they're not linked to anything that can be verified or tested. So, and he sees that as a great danger, obviously. Yeah, that's right. For, for humanity 
yeah. going forward, that's the best framework that we've got. Yeah. So he wants to narrow reality down into that framework and say, well, we're just, you know, we, we, it's no point even talking about stuff. Because uh, if we don't do that, this, yeah. then the alternative is just Chaos. open slather of yeah. people can just believe whatever yeah. they like. And that, going back to what I said at the start, that essentially is a classic expression of the God complex, because mm-hmm. in the God complex, in order to feel like we have this godlike relationship with our reality, we need to create a small enough field of reality over which it's possible for us to feel like mm-hmm. we have this yep. level of godlike, not just control, but uh, you know, godlike ability to comprehend and understand oh, and so much. forth. And I would suggest that the problem, the biggest problem is not people doing irrational things, but people playing God. That from a Christian point of view, well, broadly a biblical point of view, is the core of all of our human problems, mm-hmm. uh, is us playing God and even inventing our own criteria for truth, which he's actually doing, which is just a further expression of the God complex. So that narrowing our fe- field of reality down to this small slither, I mean, what you lose, you lose so much, you lose any transcendent standpoint from which to create any system of values. Mm-hmm. Now, I would suggest that is a dangerous thing to do. Yeah. That, that's not making anything better. better. No. You know, that's, you know, th- then, you know, then basically you're saying, well, uh, the value of a thing is relative to its value to me because there's no transcendent, there's no absolute value for something like human life, life or yeah. for, for anything really. There's no, you know, there's no, nothing sacred. It's essentially wiping out that room when we talked yeah. about the double axis yeah. thing. It's wiping out the vertical, uh, the yeah. vertical axis of reality, which I would suggest is massively damaging. So, so don't want to take you off track, but <laughs> this is, could be where you're going, but. Yeah. Then what is the alternative? Just mm. to let people uh, transcend reality and yeah, come up right. with whatever they think. Yeah, the alternative is 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 a kind of chaos, because in the world, and, and this is where we come back to a, a worldview thing. The the world is a place of chaos because people have rebelled against God and are playing God. That's why the world is in chaos. Mm. Now, actually, creating a veneer, a, like a, a kind of like whitewashing that in any way, isn't helping the problem. In fact, God wants us to feel the problem. So, yes, I, I acknowledge we, we are left with an element. We are left with yeah. an element of chaos. I mean, I think that I don't think mm. he solves that problem no. uh, for a start. I don't think, you know, narrowing uh, reality down to what is rational and so forth. Mm. I think that causes another kind of chaos. Right. Leads uh, into a whole yeah, lot of that, consequences of that thinking that I don't think most yeah, people Yeah, it does not solve the problem of chaos. You listen to someone like Dawkins talking, mm. like he gets pressed on this quite a lot by people who are, you know, like have a Which we don't faith, recommend doing, but no. Faith uh, background. Listening to him talk is incredibly depressing, I find. Like yeah. it's, there's just really no hope mm. in his existence. Yeah. It doesn't take, actually it doesn't take very long before he starts to hit the boundaries of where yeah. it actually just becomes yeah. like it's it's clever though. I mean, the, is, the, yeah. the books that these guys wrote, they're clever, but it's what is what philosophers refer to as sophistry, mm-hmm. in in that it's playing tricks. There, there are lots of philosophical tricks. It doesn't stand up philosophically, mm-hmm. but most people don't discern those tricks. Uh, I'm, so, I'm not trying to be no, um, no. dismissive, uh, yeah, yeah d- dismissive and and uh, and arrogant yeah, here, mm-hmm. but, yeah. um, but uh, 
in a way, I do want to be derogatory of the argument, yeah, the yeah, new sure. atheist argument, because it, it's just it's just trickery, it's sophistry, yeah. essentially. Uh, and so, and and I think John Gray's co- comment in in this recent book, Seven Types of Atheism, that the new atheists are an embarrassment mm-hmm. even to atheism. I mean, it's because it's just so easily. Uh, it's so easy to debunk their their argument, but anyway, the, but the, you, you can see that that they he doesn't solve the problem of of chaos that way, and 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 I guess, I guess the world is going to be chaos until Jesus returns. I mean, we know that from a Christian point of view. So, so and it's not that, and but there are things that we can do, and there there are there are antidotes to that chaos. Mm-hmm. And I mean that's probably another another topic. Yeah. Uh, you know, we don't just say, oh, "Well, let we," you know, Christians. We just think everything should be let to go to chaos. Now, this is why in you know Paul in the New Testament he talks about respecting governments, even bad governments. I yeah. mean, you know, uh, he he's essentially saying, you know, respect respect governments. You know, he says that, and Peter also says that in his letter, and they're talking about like Nero and yeah. and Domitian. Some of the worst I think. governments. And, you know, that, yeah. that's like the. But they're basically saying, you know, I know they're really bad governments, but it's better than chaos. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And and it's not that we, you know, we shouldn't do what we can to, you know, to bring about better forms mm-hmm. of governance. I think yes, that's that's important that that mm-hmm. we contribute to to that mm-hmm. uh, as well. So all, all of that's you know mm-hmm. all of that's important. But, but I think too though there is a sleight of hand. In what someone like Dawkins does with talking about faith versus reason, yep. because if you buy into that, then you buy into the idea that faith is devoid of of reason, and it is just the absence of any kind of evidence of any reasonable basis yep. for anything, and yep. that is problematic because that can then make you think, well. If that's the reason I believe in God, I have a faith in God, it's completely devoid of yes. any any yep. kind of reason. And it's no better than anyone else's faith, faith, where I don't even think there's an equivalence there, like kind of opposites, like faith no, it's is not. the opposite of re- it, it, no, it's not. it was a sleight of hand, the way he actually pitched that, because right up yep. the start, if you buy into that, then his whole framework makes sense. But I don't think faith should be- Set off against reason. No, and I, I think faith should be reasonable. It doesn't have to yep. be something that we can totally rationalize or reason our way through, you know, as a watertight kind of way of rationalizing to, to, to reach that conclusion. But I think it, it can be reasonable yep. without necessarily being yep. absolutely provable in a scientific yep. sense. Well, let me, that's a good segue to going the next step that I want to go because you know, the setting off of faith. And, well, I, I'm going to talk about knowledge, that there was a point at which we got to the point where where people were saying, well, this is real knowledge and this is just faith. That idea is a very false idea. That's yes. that's very rigged, as yeah. you say. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. exactly. It's, yeah. it's, it, was a, it was a very subtle sleight of hand way, as you say, yeah. of denigrating faith. And, and it's just a trick. It's a piece of sophistry, yeah. essentially. Um, so, so, Descartes wants to come up with this, you know, let, let's make reason the, you know, the base for everything. And he, and, and he's, you know, again, he, this is uh, someone who is at least professedly a Christian. And not all, I should say, in, in this part of history, it was possible to not be, a, you know, to stand aside. And, and there was, you know, philosophers like Spinoza and so forth that lived in Christian society and that, and that uh, you know, weren't Christians and anyway, I'm not going to go no. into that. So, uh, so these guys are at least professedly Christians. But but you know, Descartes wanted to f- use reason to become the basis 
of you know of everything. In fact, he's famously sort of doubts that anything is real. He proposes essentially a matrix, you know, the film The Matrix, where the world isn't real. You're just plugged into a machine, you know, with a thing in your brain. You're fed all of these impulses. He basically proposes that he doesn't obviously talk about you know the tech, you know machines and all of that. What he he talks about it. How how do we know that we're not being deceived by some evil demon? And and that every you know how do we know that anything is real? Right. Yeah. And so he. he poses a problem that's known as solipsism, which says that essentially says we can't really know for sure that anything that we perceive is real, yeah. you know. And and basically, what he does is that uh, he uses reason, he, you know, he reasons through this, and he reasons to you know to the fact that he makes God the basis of our certainty. Basically, I mean, he um, he says, well, uh, you know, there are certain contents of our mind that could only have come. From God, and so, uh, and and therefore, because there is a God, that you know, we we can take um, our perceptions as being somewhat reliable. But re- everything needs to be, uh, you know, um, scrutinized yeah. by uh, by reason. I'm not going to go into detail into that, but basically, what he does by, and this is the important thing. So, if you didn't get any, this is the important thing. What he does essentially is that he doubts the world. So he it's like he wipes the knowledge slate clean and he says, okay, now what we'll only accept what we can reconstruct rationally. Okay. And so he's <laughs> he cleans out the house and then he's only going to put back what he sees as as reasonable. The problem is when he puts everything back, the world or the picture of the universe or reality that he, that he ends up with is a picture of the universe that's defi- divided into two kinds of entities. There are minds and then there are objects. So the world, his world is made up of objects and he uh, he basically, this is, this is now the big step away from Aristotle. They're just objects. They're not animated by any guiding force or there's no mystical stuff happening. It's just stuff, right? It's yeah. just solid stuff right mm. and it's you know and 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 it it's it, it's mathematical in nature right it's it's geometrical that's how you you analyze it through mathematics and geometry and in its causal relation to other things right so so he he creates this universe that's divided into minds the knowing minds and objects right mm. and this is this becomes enormously uh like this this becomes very influential now because then you know Newton then builds on that and he cr- creates a world picture that sees the universe as a big machine right and and everything is defined in its causal relationship to everything else and you can you know mathematically you know you can describe that mathematically and and he you know Newton uh, actually was a very strong Christian and and he saw that that this is you know this idea of God as the watchmaker you know is the big machine and God's the one that made the big machine and we've talked about this yeah, before you know now the the problem with this is that you have God you have minds set off from objects you have God set off from the machine you know in this yeah. in this sense that God creates the machine and then just lets it and and occasionally ducks in to sort of make some uh, little repairs here and there when they need to be done but basically you get a what's known as a deist view of God as well uh, mm. whereas the biblical view is one of God continually creating and sustaining and upholding all of reality as a, now that Newtonian view of the universe has been repl- very much replaced uh, by the uh, since uh, Einstein and quantum field theory and all that sort of stuff but there's still this 
idea of reality where we as we are these knowing minds set off from reality and and a world of objects right and it even got to the point where it with someone like david hume where he says well we only know objects objective facts right uh that's all the mind can know you know knowledge is knowledge of tangible facts nothing else counts as knowledge everything else is very empty faith you know and so so you're getting there with you know with Hume you're getting close to that you know this sort of atheistic kind of picture where where we're not we're not going to recognize uh, anything outside of tangible knowledge as real knowledge and you know, everything is just kind of faith you know essentially so what he was doing is he was narrowing reality down to tangible reality right he was putting reality in a box yeah I'm going to use this illustration to explain the next step okay now when you put reality in a box it opens the question. As soon as you create a box, the question is, well, what's outside the box? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, exactly. uh, and, and this was essentially the, the next key uh, philosopher, you know, to come along and respond to all this was uh, Immanuel Kant, the German philosopher Immanuel Kant. And he basically asked that question. He said, well, limits, limits to our knowledge, like he recognized limits to our knowledge, and he drew the limits of, of human reason. And he drew them very tight and very thoroughly identified the limits of where human reason can go and where knowledge in that sense can go. But what he said is, is that limits imply something beyond those limits. Yeah. They imply that, right? So he said that, you know, I'm doing this in order to make room for faith. The problem there is that there's still this division between knowledge is everything in the box. Okay, we have knowledge of that. But everything outside the box, we know by faith. Although, um, you know, Kant did better than Hume in that he recognized that there we have an intuitive connection with everything outside the box. And I think, you know, he's on the, on the right track there. Mm-hmm. Right. But you do come away with this sense that somehow that intuitive knowledge is not quite as good as, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But but even, you know, he said the knowledge that we have of even what's in the box actually is filtered through our mental capacities. Yeah. So we actually, he said, we, in a sense, the reality that we take in through our senses is adapted to our limitations as well. Yeah. Right. You know yeah. what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yep. So so he says we actually don't really know things in, in, in themselves. We know reality as it's you know, fit into our kind of space-time capacity. How we think things work. How we, you know. So that limits us, but our own reasoning limits what we can reason as well because unless you believe that some way you're all-knowing, your ability to reason, even, you know, the new atheists would, would agree that ability to reason and to know that way is still limited. So if it's, if it's limited, if we try to then build our faith or our knowledge of God from our reason, mm. whatever version of God we come up with is therefore limited. limited by what that sort of conjecture is. It's got See, in it's got in, in a, a box. box. And 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 I've been aware of this myself. Like I it's something that I struggle with because I've got pictures in my mind of who God is and I try to reason and rationalize everything. And so I'm aware of the fact that I put God in a box. I want to see him in my mind in a certain way. I want to know him in a certain way. Now, what happens if that's not how he is and that's how I'm seeking him? There's a big risk there that I'm either going to be disappointed or I'm not going to find him 
where I think I am, mm. or God knows that I'm looking in the wrong places and deliberately steps back and tries to lead me to where he really is. But that's a confusing journey to be on. Yeah. Okay. So, so let me let me speak to that. That's a good, very good point, because God God does speak into our mental capacities. Like he, you know, and and he uses he reveals himself because he, you know, he created us and he created us as rational beings, right? Yeah. And otherwise, if we didn't have reason, we couldn't communicate. Language is the machinery of rationality yeah. moving. That's you know, without rationality, there's no language. And bill and recognizing we are reasonable, like we, yeah, we yeah, want yeah. a reason. There's, it, there's, it is part of who we are. Right? Yeah. It's, in everything that we've said about that's right. faith, I don't want to diminish. No, I don't we're want not diminishing reason. Sense. That's right. Reason is still really, really important. That's right. And and reason underlines underlies our ability to communicate. And our ability to communicate is essential to who we are as relational beings with an ability to relate to God, right? Mm-hmm. So God uses language and, and, and he communicates with us. But yet God is not limited by that box, so to speak. And one of the problems, and this goes to, to something we discussed in a previous episode around the nature of doctrine. Remember, I talked about the islands and the ocean around yes. the islands. Yeah. And, and, you know, we need to recognize that we can know things within that rational box. Like there, there are certain things that God communicates to us, uh, but it's very important that we don't try to fit all of reality into that box. And and because this is this happens in a lot of theological reflection, people reason from one thing to another. Well, if that's the case, then this, and then this, and then this, and then you know, uh, you know, I was reflecting on one uh, example where you know there's this view that it's it's a doctrine known as the the doctrine of the impassibility of God, where you know you know God doesn't experience emotions of any kind. It's like this emotionless, and and I think it's. I mean, I get it's going in, in a human sense, but the the. It's essentially saying is that we don't really have any effect on God uh, because that's irrational that we because otherwise then if if we did something and the God was affected in like so let's say God is grieved or God is then then it would mean that God would change and God never changes and and all of that sounds very rational like it's a, it's it's a rational form of argument but you're essentially you're you're using reason to say things about God that are completely outside of what we can know what 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 we can know you know and it's mm. trying to create a theology that's all rational you know and you end up basically with something that looks like brahman or something mm-hmm. which well you know then you just get this impersonal force out there and it pervades you know like you get these pantheism the kind you know the kind of uh pantheism that you see in say hinduism or stoicism or is is comes from this rigorous application of rationality to the to the intuition of God, you know, and, and I just, you know, it's it's still putting God in a box, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and it's possible to do theology in a way that wants to fit everything into that rational box, but yeah. God speaks to us using our rationality, but God Himself is outside of that logic in so many different ways, and this is this brings me to really the key point: the demand. That God be rationally proven or tangibly, tangibly proven. Even the wish that, say, a Christian might have when they doubt. Oh, I just, I, you know, and and I talk to a lot of people who go through all sorts of doubts, and and I always ask the question: What is it that you think you need to address these doubts? Yeah. 
And it's always something that's going to fit inside the box. You know, it's always something, there's almost a demand there that God be something less than what God is, Mm -hmm. you know. So maybe if there's a miracle, but a miracle isn't God, right? A miracle's not the same of God. And and if a miracle happened, there'd be a hundred different rational ways you might explain if if you believe in a spiritual reality. Well, that could be whatever, you know what I mean? The problem there is this need uh, to know things in this subject object way. Mm -hmm. I want God to become an object, either a rational object that I can circumscribe intellectually, that I can understand Mm -hmm. intellectually, right? But nevertheless, an object, an intellectual object, or or some kind of tangible object. It's like a demand that God be less than God so that I can set myself off from that idea Mm -hmm. and approve that idea and say, ah, yes, there, you know, that's true. Or even something physical, uh, you know, I can see you opposite me. So I say, no, I know that Connell is, exists because mm-hmm. you're there, right? But I can only state that because you are actually limited and, yeah. and because I can view you as an object. But mm-hmm. actually, you know, this begs the question because if I define you as an object, then even that's problematic mm-hmm. because you are actually a mind, you are consciousness, mm-hmm. and that aspect of you transcends uh, the limitations of your three-dimensional form. You know what I mean? There's, yeah. there's, there's, there's something even mystical going on there with you as a person. Mm-hmm. And so it's already problematic if I say I know you and, and think in terms of – like a physical object or even a rational object, well, I'm even limiting your existence then because there's way more dimension and, and even a transcendent value to your life yeah. that, that goes beyond anything that's, that's yeah. reasonable. So if, if that's the case with you as a soul, mm. then how much more is it with God? And this is, this is what's problematic about doubt. This is the problem with doubt. Doubt essentially is a demand that God fit you know, accommodate himself to my demand to know something in a certain way. It's not a problem with doubt itself. I think doubt is something that you can feel, but it's your response to doubt. What demand do you make? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Because there are some things that we can validly doubt. That's right. Because I doubt. I think think when we have an honest conversation with most Christians, I I think doubt is a very real... Because we don't have that certainty in the sense of being able to test it and know, prove it to my standard of reason. Uh, I can't prove it to that standard. So then there's there's an element of doubt, especially when God doesn't work the way that I think he should work or, or when I'm kind of thinking I want to have more faith. I want to take Mm. a a bigger step into God. Then inherently in that is a Mm. sense of, doubt because yeah. we, that's the whole point of faith is that it, it's not that we don't have a reasonable reasonable basis to take a step of faith but there is some doubt in there there is scope within that well that's it's what not, makes it faith it's not going to that's right so doubt is part of that but then how do we respond to that how i've responded to it in the past i tend to dig into rationalism i would say get into apologetics I would try to find reasons, yeah. and I, I've dug myself into a deep hole that caused me to lose faith yeah. through apologetics, even though I felt like I was getting answers and validating my faith and closing down doubt. What was actually happening is I'd never reach the end of my questions. Yeah. I'd always have another doubt, another, mm. another, but, yeah. but, but what if, and what if, and I'd get answers to things. I could find some things I couldn't, 
and I'd wrestle with that. But there's always is an infinite number of things that I'd like to know that I can't get the answer to. And I can keep looking for answers and I may find answers to those things. But, but it never resolves. It yeah. never resolves. And ultimately, you've reduced God down to just something. It's just completely constrained by yeah. your ability to rationalize. And then you can't see God anymore. That's right. So let's let's analyze what's going on there because I think this is this is where this gets practical. Yeah, it's good. Yep. So you said that you doubt, and and that is, and I think that's what because I think everyone does, and and so just the fact that you doubt, uh, that you can doubt, because some people might say, well, even the fact that we can doubt means that it, it's it's kind of a question that's uh, that's up for grabs, but it's important that we actually analyze uh, analyze our doubt. And 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 I think being a bit of an overthinker myself, and and I've certainly I've certainly been been there. But what I'm finding is that by bringing scrutiny to bear on my doubt and by understanding what is actually happening when I doubt, that there's actually something very dysfunctional happening uh, when I doubt, something mm. spiritually dysfunctional happening. That it's actually been a very key thing that has enabled me to overcome that, you know what I mean? By overcoming the need for a certain kind of verification or the need for a certain kind of understanding on the one hand, and then on the other, enabling myself to actually recognize uh, another type of knowledge that actually goes unrecognized. It's, it's actually enabled me and this is a deliberate thing to turn from that to say, well, that that desire, and this is this is moving into the analysis of that now. Mm. That desire for to know things in that certain way, that there's an element of God complex in that. Like it's just essentially what I'm doing by wanting to understand or know in that way. Mm-hmm. I am essentially narrowing reality down in a way that is completely untenable you yeah. know um and also it it fails to recognize that that is a way of knowing that subject object and i mean it's a problematic way of knowing um it's problematic in the sense that i just described mm-hmm. like we don't claim to know each other in that in that way like if we really subject this to scrutiny there's a sense and this is what it even means to love someone is to recognize a sense of transcendent value that you are not just the sum of your capacities or um or the the, the sum of your usefulness your to value you or, or to even to the world yeah. or uh you know we don't you know when we love our children we're not you know it's it's a, it's almost an it's an what well, not almost but it is an unquantifiable love it's it's a sense of something transcendently actually infinitely valuable mm-hmm. sacred right mm-hmm. and and i think we we recognize that in in i mean if i treated you as just an like just an object it'd be a kind of uh psychotic uh, it'd be enormously dysfunctional mm-hmm. but i i recognize something transcendent there's a sense of transcendent value, value to, to your life so already there in ordinary life where we're already exercising or we're responding to some intuition of something beyond the object, right? Something beyond what's rational. As soon as I assume uh, a certain amount of value, which when we experience love, we are experiencing a transcendent sense of value. And I'm not just talking about love in terms of desire, you know, Um, you know, think, you know, as parents, you know, probably the purest form of love that we have is, you know, that there's something transcendent there. Mm -hmm. And, 
we are actually experiencing a kind of knowledge there that's not a rational knowledge. Uh, th- th- there's no rationale mm-hmm. for that kind of experience beyond the, yeah. you know, what, the, you know, sort of the, uh, what can be rationalized there and so forth. So what, what I've, what I've recognized is that when I demand that kind of objective knowledge of God, that God be an object that, that I can somehow. Which we don't demand of anything else. No, we don't. Imagine if we actually with don't. With your kids. That's right. Imagine if you, with your children, you demanded that. No, I'm not going to love them unless you can prove that it's real and or that you can, yeah, that prove that you're worthwhile or that you're. I mean, because we hold, we hold them to be have a worth that is transcendent, Mm -hmm. right? And we actually experience that when we experience love. So, in the same way as we're experiencing that, I, I would suggest that we are actually already experiencing. The reality of God in a very constant sense, uh, not only innately through intuition, through things like uh, the the irrepressible desire we have for ultimate meaning, for ultimate uh, you know an ultimate connection with with a transcendent standpoint, you know values when we think about justice and morality, and we have this this stuff is inbuilt. There's mm-hmm. a there's a knowledge of something transcendent, but there's actually- As if it comes from outside. But it, it, but it comes from outside. And I think it's very difficult for human beings to deny that. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think there's, a, there's an immediate intuition of right and wrong, of evil. There are some things that when we're confronted by, we know it's evil, and yet rationally, it cannot be accounted for. I mean, I've- there's hundreds of years of trying to build morality since the Enlightenment period, since, you know, Hume and these guys, you know, denied the meaning of statements not relating to actual facts. Mm-hmm. You know, they tried to build a new morality based purely on facts and they haven't succeeded. It's, mm-hmm. it's, there is no genuine sense of, of right and wrong or even value statements that yep. you can make. And so, and yet, we are all experiencing something constantly that is that is outside of reason. Uh, we are all experiencing a transcendent mm-hmm. sense of value, a transcendent sense of uh, of right and wrong with re- in relation to evil. When we're confronted by evil, there's it there's there's a knowledge there that we're exercising that's way outside of reason. That's an in an innate knowledge, and Paul talks about this in mm-hmm. Romans chapter two. But when I even think that our ability to believe that we can reason is an innate knowledge. Yeah. Because if you believe that all reason came from within, as in yeah. it was merely rational processes in your yeah. brain, neurons firing and so on, it was completely self-generated, Yeah, what kind of reason would that be? Unless it was actually mm. something that was imparted to us yeah. from outside, our ability to reason is given to us from the outside rather yeah. than something it's if it was self-generated we'd have no basis to even think that our reasoning had any yeah, value, value whatsoever yeah. that's right and no basis for enforcing that as a universal no. measure yeah. of, of validity no. for, for anything really yeah. you know so in the same way you know whereas with objects in the subject object relationship we have we refer to that as knowledge because, again, we set ourselves off from it and we can approve it. We can stand, as it were, on the outside in this sort of godlike relationship and, and understand objects in this certain way mm-hmm. that has this, this kind of knowledge as power kind of knowledge, you know, the ability to grasp something. Well, I would suggest there's actually a more immediate form of knowledge than that. 
and and I would suggest that God, our knowledge of God belongs to a more immediate field of knowledge than that. Like it's closer to us. We are actually experiencing God in a very constant sense. Uh, the very being that we have uh, is um, uh, the, uh, you know, the Westminster Confession of Faith d- describes God as the fountain of all being. Mm. Uh, we are actually participating in something divine by the very fact that we exist, right? Including the very that the life that we have is a, mm. is a participation in God. The consciousness, right? Think about you know, mm. even the consciousness that makes us aware of things going on uh, is a participation in something divine. Let alone what comes with that—the sense of ultimate meaning and values hope, of right and wrong. The, you know, the yeah. hope, sense of purpose. Yeah. all of that is a matter of very immediate knowledge. But the problem is, is that our empiricist, empiricist sort of culture—the culture of you know—that that wants to say knowledge is only knowledge of empirical objects. You know, our scientific culture has. In a, in a sense, has invalidated that. Let me put it that way. Has invalidated that as as real knowledge. Whereas you know that itself, that claim uh, itself, is unsupportable. It's an unsupportable yeah. claim. And I'll say, universal human intuitions. Mm. What I'm what we're describing here are universal human intuitions. Yeah. To deny that yeah. and say no, that's not real knowledge, uh, and, and none well, of that's really real. Well, it's standing on the same foundation. They're standing on the foundation of intu- intuitive knowledge, yeah, of a of a faith position. Really, that they are actually even capable of reason and rational thought in the first place. Yeah, that's they're right. having to adopt some sort of faith position. I actually had that conversation with someone a few weeks ago who was sort of wrestling with these things, and they. My point was that you know they're thinking about it as faith in God or or reason in science, and my point was. It doesn't matter what you do, you have to stand on a faith position Something. because mm. at some point where you come down to ability to reason, and it really comes down to either one of two things. Do you believe that reason comes from within, or do you believe that reason comes from outside in? And that's a faith question because you can't necessarily Pretty establish hard. that. Yeah. We don't have the tools to do it. You can take a faith position that says, no, it all comes from within. There's nothing from outside. It's all yeah. just a product of ourselves. In which case, it's still a faith position, a completely mm. arbitrary claim. Why would you choose to believe that when actually that as an explanatory system yeah. breaks down pretty quick? Because uh, it, it actually then fails to even be a, a reasonable framework to do reason. That's right. Uh, within, or do you believe it comes from outside, which means that it's it it's put in you, it's outside of you, it's bigger than you, that even actually enables you to, to do it in the first place. In which case, you're placing faith into something that's outside of you that implants something in you. Ultimately, that's the question: which road do you want to travel on? If you go down the path of outside, you're actually now starting to move into something that's beyond you for what you know, which ultimately now starts to lead into a reasonableness that the idea of a, a, some sort of God is, is a reasonable idea, not so quickly dismissed as the likes of Dawkins would do. That's right. Um, Although I think it's important to say it's not a purely arbitrary choice between, between the two. So, and this is where probably a better definition of faith isn't just this kind of blind Mm -hmm. idea of you just Mm. blindly step out and accept something for which there's no evidence. That's not what faith is. 
Faith actually is a kind of knowledge. Yeah. Uh, it's a knowledge gained in a different sort of way. Uh, and it's the knowledge – because essentially the, one of the ways I, that I think you can describe faith is letting God be God, is, is acknowledging God as God. And, and in a sense, it has the element of trust. Uh, I entrust myself to God. It's it's, it's like I, I choose to be inside that reality rather than setting myself off and trying to know it in a certain way. Uh, it's the willingness to step inside that and to to uh, to recognize that not only the immediate intuition, but actually to move with that and to put ourselves in God's hands. Now, now there's a there's a circular thing here because people will say, well, how do you have faith if you don't have faith? <laughs> you know, mm. like how do you make that decision when you know if you doubt or? But see, this this is where this is where the saving act of God is is important. You know, this is where the Christian notions of salvation are key, and this is where they come in. And this is, I think, we'll land this here because the key thing that God wants to save us from is our God complex. I mean, Paul says in Ephesians chapter two, when you were dead in transgressions. Okay. So there was a sense in which by setting ourselves off from that reality, we're in a realm of death, right? So uh, God comes to us in Jesus Christ in order to pay for our guilt so that we can be reconciled. Uh, in order that the Holy Spirit can take hold of us and and draw us into that, and there's this this sovereign work of God. Paul also says in in the same chapter in Ephesians chapter two, talks about faith being a gift of God. Now, you know, again, that there's the question of how this sovereign act of God and our human choice work together. And again, in people try to discuss that inside the box and make all sorts of problematic decisions there. The two work together. It's We do need to respond to God. We need to exercise uh, our faith and make a decision to actually be in the inside and acknowledge God. But we also recognize that this is a matter of firsthand knowledge because I only have faith because God, in a sense, revealed himself to me and, and sort of grabbed me and pulled me inside that. You know what I mean? I, I was, you know, in a place of in and in my experience was in a place of doubt and and skepticism and and from which I should never have emerged but mm-hmm. God took a hold of me mm-hmm. and he dragged me inside of that reality and I found myself inside of something that I knew I could not comprehend and I felt so foolish for even trying to know it in that certain way and so I think the practical thing here is for us to acknowledge the sense in which we already know God and to to look to sensitize ourselves more to that. You know, it's to begin a prayer time, not think, oh, I wonder if God's there or but Lord, I acknowledge that you are I acknowledge your presence. You know, to express our faith in that sense, to acknowledge the presence of God and to do things that sensitize us and expand this new way of knowing, you know, acts of worship, acts of devotion, prayer. These are the things that people don't do because they're too busy thinking about, oh, is God even there in the first place? No, actually, we need to act from the inside and uh, with this act of acknowledgement in recognizing that we are immersed in God's presence. He has been, is always, will continue to be at work. And our response must be one of surrendering to that and letting God be God in faith. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Thrive Perspectives. Our hope is that these discussions will challenge you to look at life from a new perspective. You'll find all our resources at the Thrive Today website, thrivetoday.tv.
there's a topic that you'd like us to discuss, please email us. Our email is contact at thrivetoday.tv. Until next time, our prayer is that you will thrive.